Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Garrick. Hello, Ben. Hello, Gabe. Now, every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So each week, we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Now, in these uncertain times, it seems apt to review two classic twin movies about a man on a mission to find his way through a dangerous post-apocalyptic world in order to save others. It's The Road versus The Book of Eli. Let the battle for survival commence. So let's kick up this episode, as we always do, with an overview of these twin movies and our flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 25th of November, 2009, The Road was released. Here's its synopsis on IMDb. In a dangerous, post-apocalyptic world, an ailing father defends his son as they slowly travel to the sea. So, Gabe, did you originally catch The Road when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like? Uh, I did see it at the movies. I think I I must have... I'd very recently read Cormac McCarthy's novel and I'd obviously seen John Hillcott's previous movie, The Proposition, which is a pretty great Australian Western, I guess. So I was pretty keen to see this. So I popped along to my local cineplex for a uh, profoundly depressing uh, time at the pictures. I don't actually remember much about it beyond that, to be honest, except being quite excited. Although I remember seeing the trailers before this came out and it looked like it had been marketed as a much more action-packed, exciting, you know, adventure film. They sort of overloaded the trailers with all the the tiny pieces of action that exist in this movie. So I kind of wasn't sure what I was going to get, whether it be something closer to the book or a Dimension Films you know, exploitation release. For those who don't know Dimension Films, that's the genre division of what was once known as Miramax and now the Weinstein Company run by Harvey Weinstein's brother Bob. And they're famous or infamous for making, yeah, pretty A-level production value, B-level exploitation or genre flicks. Would that be a fair way of describing it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they made quite a lot of good, Good movies, you know, Scream and um, Phantoms. Spy Kids. <laughs> Spy Kids. Um, <laughs> um, Dust Till Dawn 3. Um, but, um, but yeah, so they made this and um, I think there was a little bit of controversy at the time as to whether it would hew close to the tone of the novel or they would put in uh, a role for Charlize Theron, for instance, who didn't exist in the, in the book, just to beef up that Part? I don't know, whatever. But um, what about you? Did you see it at the movies? Yeah, I saw it at the Randwick Ritz Cinema in Sydney, which is that Art Deco cinema. It's a great movie-going experience. I also recall the marketing beforehand was very much trying to pitch an action film. This film had a few stops and starts in relation to its release strategy, which I'll get into in our Hollywood shallow slash deep dive but I do recall it was marketing in one way and had great reviews, but the film I saw, which I really like, we'll get to that, isn't the same film I saw advertised on TV. And so in the audience, there were a lot of people basically expecting Mad Max and they got something that was much slower, much bleaker, and the audience reaction around me wasn't great. Uh, they were having a great time at the pictures, as you'd say. No. Had you read the book? Had you read the book? No, I hadn't, but Cormac McCarthy was on my mind a lot because I think it started 2008 when the Coen Brothers adaptation No Country for Old Men won the Oscar. 
So he was the hot so right now guy at that point in terms of being the author to adapt into award-winning prestige movies. And I recall the time you pitching to me a really, really dark scene involving a baby, which was planted in my brain when I went to see the film. And subsequently, I've heard that John Hillcoat took that scene out. I'll get to that scene later on. But it was seen to be even too dark for John Hillcoat. And that's a director who actually really, you know, is happy to sort of show some pretty dark parts of humanity. So I hadn't read the book. I went in cold. I knew it was going to be a drama, but the rest of the audience around me had no idea. And man, oh, man, were they surprised. Yeah, it feels like one of those movies, you know, where people, uh, there's this thing called like Cinema Score or whatever in the US where they sort of rate an audience's um, reaction to a film after seeing it. Um, and, you know, there's the dreaded F score. Um, I think, um, uh, what's that um, Andrew Dominic film that Brad Pitt plays the hitman in? Killing Them Softly. Yeah, yeah, like that got a F cinema score. And, you know, this certainly feels like one of those movies where it would get a, a very low score because, like you say, people would go in with a real expectation of post-apocalyptic hijinks, maybe something closer to our other film, Book of Eli, and instead get, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, a, a, a series of, like, uh, depressing vignettes about how horrible it would be to live in a world with no sun, no animals, and all the trees are dead. Yeah, the reality versus the movie version of that, which brings me to later on, on the 15th of January 2010, The Book of Eli was released, and here's its synopsis on the Internet Movie Database. A post-apocalyptic tale in which a lone man fights his way across America in order to protect a sacred book that holds the secrets to saving mankind. So, Gabe, talk me through when, where and how you first watched The Book of Eli. Oh, man, I got I got no idea if I saw this at the movies. This is one of the those movies where I've, like, I've seen it a bunch of times, but, oh, man, I just can't, I cannot for the life of me remember if I saw it at the pictures. But I have seen it. I've seen it. Of course, I have seen it. Yeah, in fact, it's just as well I have seen it. Um, it's a you know, it's a relatively enjoyable movie. So it's one of those easy films to just kind of chuck on in the in the background. I'm just afraid. I just I just don't know. Do you have a indelible memory of seeing this at the at the movies? No, I only recall the poster. I recall the poster being everywhere on bus shelters, on the sides of buses, and that was actually more memorable to me than the actual movie itself. And I actually thought this film would be something like one of our favourite films, The Equaliser, which came (laughs) subsequently in years to come. But that's the sort of film it was pitched at in terms of the promotional material. And I guess that's the film we got. I was a little sceptical because of the religious overtones. It made me anxious at the time. And even now when I rewatch it, it alludes to The Postman, Kevin Costner's <laughs> apocalyptic movie, and that film, much like Waterworld, has been derided over the years. Yeah, that religious overtone, which we'll get to in the review now, makes me slightly uncomfortable. But let's just start with our quick history lesson before we jump in to review these films. Let's find out how we got here. The Road, as you mentioned, Gabe, is based on the book of the same name by Cormac McCarthy. The book was actually published in 2006, and the director of The Road, John Hillcote, actually got a copy of it 
for those listeners who aren't in the film or TV industry, what's been very normal in the last 20 years is that publishers shop around a story, a book, a magazine article in some cases, which will be published in the future, but they know it's going to be popular and something worthwhile to adapt into a film or TV series. So they shop around the draft basically to all of the various agents who then pass it on to their actors and directors on their books. And so there's often opportunity where the rights will be bought to adapt that story before the book even hits the shelf. And sometimes they even are so far advanced in pre-production on the movie, you'll actually have a book jacket at the bookshop, which actually says, to be a movie soon featuring Charlize Theron. Now a major motion picture or something. Exactly, exactly. So John Hillcoat got a hold of this, loved it. He was approached by the producers because they'd seen his earlier film, which he mentioned, Gabe, The Proposition, which is a bleak Australian Western shot on a low to medium budget in one of the most barren places in Australia. So you'd immediately see how the producer would watch the proposition and see very much a similar filmmaking style and the way that he could handle this post-apocalyptic world in terms of its harshness, its sparseness. Then the film sort sort of rolled on from there. They approached Viggo Mortensen. He was reluctant at the start. He was going to go and take a two-year break from filmmaking. He agreed to star in this film and subsequently had a break from filmmaking. And that's how he got to this film. I mentioned earlier the troubles with distribution, but we'll save that. Why don't I just jump quickly to The Book of Eli? Now, here's something that surprised me, Gabe. I had no idea about this. Mm-hmm. Do you know the screenwriter Gary Witter? Um, No, I mean, not personally. I think I follow him on Twitter. Yeah, so do I. So do I. I actually know him more from Twitter than his screenwriting credits. So I was actually surprised. Gary Witter is the screenwriter behind Rogue One, which was one of the Star Wars prequel movies that came out a few years ago and was actually really well received, both by fans and by critics. And Gary Witter has a background as a writer of video games. It's interesting because there have been a lot of uh, similarities drawn between the game series Fallout and Book of Eli, and this was one of his first screenwriting Hollywood credits outside games. And so he came up with this story himself. He was both concept and writer, and quite unusually in Hollywood was the only writer. And once they brought on Denzel... Then obviously, surprise, surprise, the whole thing unfolded quickly after that. So there doesn't seem to be a connection between these films in terms of them fighting to make it to the cinema. They are both films set in this post-apocalyptic world, but they don't seem to have so much in common that one would possibly threaten the other. So that's how we got there with these two films. Yeah, I mean, I think neither of these films are the the pioneers of their their post-apocalyptic genre. I'm sure if we looked into it, there'd be maybe maybe one or two other post-apocalyptic movies released that year. And it's kind of nice that they feel very different. I mean, notwithstanding how you feel about them as individual movies, it feels like the post-apocalyptic uh, sandbox is large and encompassing of many tones and styles. Sandbox. Ha, huh, pun. I get it. Very clever. So let's jump to our review of The Road. So, Gabe, what did you like about it? What worked? What didn't? 
what I found kind of interesting about this movie is I think I liked it a lot more the first time I saw it. And then on subsequent rewatches, I don't know, my enthusiasm, which is a weird word to describe a movie like The Road, has sort of waned a little bit. What I find kind of interesting is I've recently reread the book and the book is really amazingly written and it has this incredibly sparse, interesting prose. And it's one of those things where oftentimes with adaptations, people adapt the plot, but you can't adapt the tone or you can't adapt the prose, which is, I guess, why you often end up with a lot of voiceover. This film obviously doesn't have voiceover, but adaptations of books often end up with a lot of voiceover in trying to trying to capture the voice of that book. And I don't know, this, this, this sort of gets halfway there in just sort of a depiction of absolute kind of bleakness. But there's something just really magical about the way the book is written. And so, I don't know, I guess just... It, my, my feelings for it is just chipped away a little bit because of that. I mean, there's a lot to love about this movie, the, the, the photography, the music, the performances. But, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just find it more of a slog each time I watch it now, which may well be kind of the point of the movie. It's certainly not a movie with a twist or rewatchability in that way. But I don't know. It, it's interesting because I really liked it and now I just sort of have a – respect for it. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. This film isn't really one which you'd say is a classic rewatchable. It's pretty bleak. So it's not really one that you whack onto your iPad and just watch as you're making dinner or something in the kitchen. You know, it is a very dark film, both thematically, uh, visually. It's very slow. I really enjoyed it though watching it the second time. So I did both these films back to back last night before this podcast recording, which you gotta say is potentially punishment because watching three and a half hours of films where, you know, there's threats of cannibalism and uh sexual assault and, you know, murders and just the worst aspects of humanity in terms of depravity. Yet I found that this film, watching it for the only second time since I saw it, in total, so I had never seen it after my cinema viewing, and I really enjoyed it. When I say enjoyed it, I cried. Wow. Now, yeah, I know. It, it, this film got to me then, and maybe at a subconscious level I hadn't re-watched it because it did get to me. For a bit of context, this film came out when my eldest son was less than a year old, and just the relationship between the father and son I found incredibly moving. I just don't know how he nailed it. Great performance. Uh, he being Hillcott or Mortensen? All of them. Right. And also uh, the, the kid as well. Oh, yeah, Cody. Yeah, yeah. Cody, yeah, Smith McPhee. I think it's just the combination of both his direction, the words on the page, apparently Gary, sorry, um, the screenwriter. Uh, Joe Penhall. Joe Penhall got the job because he actually wanted to retain the dialogue and probably the voiceover that was in the book. So the choices he made in that adaptation and the choices Hillcoat made and Viggo Mortensen and Cody Smith-McPhee just holistically worked in synergy. I teared up. I wasn't sobbing, but I definitely had watery eyes, which I haven't had for a movie for years and years, maybe since then. So- it got to me then. 
Oh, I tell you what, like I'm just almost trembling now just thinking about it. We're recording this combination of twin movies during the COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic around the world. And so everyone's feeling on edge, feeling uneasy. There's a high degree of anxiety and uncertainty about the world. The funny thing will be, Gabe, looking in a year from now, people will think, wow, those guys should have really been learning how to use a gun maybe and how to make fire and stuff rather than recording a podcast. Or we'll sound like we're just being totally over the top in our reaction to this whole crisis. But here we are. We've chosen these two twin movies that are set at a time of the world collapsing. And so I'm watching The Road last night and I'm thinking to myself, if that was me, because my son is the same age as Cody Smith-McPhee in the movie, and the idea of having to protect your son from being eaten, from being raped, from being a slave, is just a horrific concept. And with him dying, there's this ticking clock throughout the movie where he just wants to get the kid to a degree of autonomy and to a safer space before he passes away. It just breaks my heart. Just thinking about it now as I reflect on my viewing last night, it's a tragic idea because there is no win. That's what makes this film so bleak is that their victory every day is a tiny bit of food and not dying and maybe moving forward slightly across the land with no idea, though, that where they're going to will actually be better. And then the film ends, spoilers, where he meets this character played by Guy Pearce who's referred to in the credits as veteran and a woman and two kids who ostensibly are a family, although that's not 100% clarified. So you kind of finish the film with about an 80% certainty that he's actually going to be brought in as an adopted member of this family, but there's that 20% of uncertainty that maybe they'll take advantage of him in some way because they've been following him and his dad. Yeah, it's 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 a hard watch. It's a hard watch. And I'm really glad I watched it. But I, I woke up this morning before this podcast recording and I thought, you know what? This sounds cliche. This sounds corny. But I actually want to just seize the day and be present because if our world goes to shit, and that's highly unlikely based on the nature of this pandemic, but if it does, I want to like cherish what I've got. And looking at that future possibility, which we've seen in many movies before, um, The Road just gives you the version, which I guess we've seen most recently in The Walking Dead, which is the worst parts of humans coming out. The people that are bashing each other and pulling out flick knives over toilet paper, which concerns me. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the film really gives you no sense of um, there being a future for this world. You know, Book of Eli has like the 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 the, the brainiacs on Alcatraz who are collecting things to sort of having a chance to some form of restarting society or some sort of hope. But yeah, the road, the road is kind of relentless in its grimness. You imagine even if he grows up, you know, what's your sort of life expectancy anyway? That, that, that great scene where they find like the can of Coca-Cola and that sort of moment for them where they can, um, you know, have something from the old world that doesn't exist anymore. And it's just like one can of Coca-Cola or when, when Robert Duvall eats the can of uh, corn, corn. He eats the corn real fast and real delicious. But, Ben, actually, just want to jump back to something you said. You said you said something to the effect of we're here podcasting when we maybe we should be preparing for 
the apocalypse. You can do both at once, man. You know, I'm I'm sharpening stakes for my uh, punji stick trap right as we talk. Actually, that's a relief. I felt bad because if you're hearing these slight clings of tin inspired by uh, Mad Max 2, the road warrior, I'm actually stacking dog food cans here beside me. So I am ready. I am primed. Yeah. Bring it on. Exactly. And I know you've bought a whole bunch of uh, Coca-Cola just so you can recreate that moment 24 times uh, with a case. Don't you think it would be hilarious that if there was to be some sort of social breakdown to the degree of the road, there'd be people that you and I know in the film community, mainly writers and directors, who would be almost fetishising recreating moments from these movies you know, as some sort of sense of comfort. You know, they'd have a blue healer with a red bandana around his neck, like in The Road Warrior, or they'd have a little sprightly little kid in a helicopter, like in The Road Warrior, and then so on and so on, like the Coca-Cola scene from here. I sort of feel that people are already doing that. They're saying, oh, in the movie, this breakdown happens at this point, and this happens at this point. And I've heard two people in the film industry referring to we're at this bit in that movie, which is interesting, right, because we don't have a point of comparison. All we have is fiction. And being lovers of fictional stories, we turn to those at reference point. But if someone had said to you a year ago, if you're writing a post-apocalyptic film or the sequel to Contagion or Outbreak, a film, films about pandemics, and they'd said to you, right, what's going to happen on week three? is that there's going to be massive fights over toilet paper. And you go, really? Because I thought it was more a droplet-based infection that results in dry coughs and it's a lung infection. It'd be more respiratory-related like tissues or something. No, 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 no. People will go nuts for fucking toilet paper. Are, are you saying that one of the – something you might ding the road for is that it uh, doesn't have that sort of uh, realistic depiction of – human behaviours in that you wanted some more fights over toilet paper as opposed to just imagining the the disgusting nature of Viggo Mortensen's dirty skid pants as he and the boy uh, navigate a world without any toilet paper. Two skids, one road, Ugh. no hope. Brutal, brutal. No, the, fu- the funny thing is, is that I watched The Road 11 years ago and I watched it again last night and to me it is a realistic depiction of where humanity goes in a moment like this because I do have hope for humanity but I also feel the worst side of them comes out. And my only surprise, what's happening right now, is that it goes to hell much faster than you expect. So the toilet paper stuff is actually, to me, a depressing sign that people start becoming selfish and hostile much faster than we see in the movies. In the movies... It takes them like 30 years. I think in Book of Eli, hasn't he been walking across the country for 30 years? He has. Right. So there are scenes there in terms of the way that the male characters on screen treat women and so on, which I would worry would happen within days and weeks of an event like this. And in this movie, it seems it's expected, but it doesn't feel like it's been entrenched for 30 years, which is what I'd unfortunately think would happen. I actually think that... In some respects, the slaves that you see in Mad Max Fury Road, those women that are basically vehicles for procreation and also to provide milk as a food source, I actually think we go we end up in that direction much faster in 30 years than what we see in 
either The Road or The Book of Eli. I think you're right. I will say this, though. The Road really feels like it gets uh, just how just how bad everyone's teeth get in a uh, post-apocalyptic setting. I, I appreciate that. They, they all have gross teeth, and that makes sense. It's so true because if you watch a film which has good-looking actors set in prehistoric times or even in the 40s, they always have perfect teeth because actors in Hollywood want to look their best. But it's gross, isn't it? Like, particularly Guy Pierce's teeth at the very end of the movie. Like, yeah. they're terrible. And it's what would actually happen. Yeah, totally. Like, you actually see a scene where the boy uses toothpaste for the first time and because he has no experience with it, he basically puts, in, puts on 10 times more than is required. But he has no sense of dental hygiene at all because that's just a luxury which doesn't exist in this world. What didn't work for you about The Road? You mentioned before that you haven't enjoyed it as much since. Is it the voiceover? Is it the fact that it's deviated too much from the book? What hasn't floated your boat on subsequent viewings? I don't know. It's it's sort of tough to drill down and, and be really specific. Ah, this is going to sound really weird and this is a sort of crossover to my opinions of Book of Eli. In, in Book of Eli... I wanted there to be less plot. I loved all the the first sort of 15 minutes of Book of Eli, which is just these low-key, loosely connected vignette things of Denzel just doing post-apocalyptic shit, killing a cat and chopping up some guys under an underpass and so on. In The Road, I guess I guess it's just that, yeah, as a movie it sort of just feels like a whole series of loosely connected short stories where there's not really, I don't know, do you know, how do I best explain this? There's just not something that in it drives it all forward beyond them just trudging across America, which is weird because that's what I want in Book of Eli. I want just, I just want Denzel just doing low-key shit. So I don't know, man, my opinions of these are just real confused. I want one to be a bit more like the other and the other to be a bit more like the... I don't know, man. I just don't know. Maybe it's just the nature of the movie that the first time you watch it, it's all new and you're interested and then the second time it's just brutally depressing. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe my my reaction is a purely visceral one based on how realistic this seems as a depiction of the of the 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 post apocalyptic a post apocalyptic future and it's just uh it's just heavy going, you know? It's just hard going. It's just human- humanity at its worst. Maybe when that doesn't feel fresh, it's just hard. I don't know. That was fucking rambling and made no sense. I can't really put into words the specificity of it. I can appreciate that because the film flashbacks to Charlize Theron's character called Woman, who is the mother of the boy and the wife of the man, and it's risky because it's moments of escapism where he essentially is having a pleasant dream, although he wakes up in the film like it's a nightmare because it's just such a juxtaposition with his depressing present. And in some respects, that actually takes me out of the journey. This is the danger with any flashback is that it stops the film from moving forward. So that's one issue I've got. I want to ask you, is the woman in the novel or not? No, I, I'm I'm ninety nine point nine 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 percent certain that's something that they they added. I agree that doesn't really work for me, and I'm not quite sure what the point of it is. 
I mean- I've got a theory. Yeah, okay, hit me. I think it's a case of, A, adding just a female character to the story in an otherwise male-dominated story. Fair. I know it seems funny when so many movies like The Gentleman or Locks Talking Two Smoking Barrels, but lots of movies have just male characters. But I think they need to actually have diversity of gender somewhat to try and lift this bleak film. I also think they didn't trust the audience. I think they needed to actually show his love for her to demonstrate why he's motivated to try and keep surviving, which is funny because I think you trust the audience to think that if he's lost his wife and all he has is his son, that's probably enough for most audiences to get on board the idea that he's devastated with his loss and needs to retain the one family member who is left. I don't think the audience would doubt that. I mean- most people do like their loved ones and so would appreciate that, particularly when you're down to like one. Like if you've had a family of six people, it's different, right? <laughs> when you're down to one, <laughs> you know, when you've eaten your other children and you've just got one left. Exactly. So uh, there's that. I will give it one credit and this might relate to your comment about it being a series of vignettes or short films. The music is spectacular. Like Nick Cave and Warren Ellis once again smashing it out of the park They did it on The Proposition. They did it on The Assassination of Jesse James. They've done it in this film. Those two guys working together, I just think, can elevate a film. Even the film is great already. can elevate it to being even better again. And I think their use of music kind of creates that melodic mood where you kind of flow from scene to scene without a traditional narrative, whereas the score in The Book of Eli is very much hitting the beats of that particular scene in a more classical movie way. And you look at, say, the films of John Hillcoat, like The Assassination of Jesse James, same thing, right? The scenes sort of flow loosely from one to the other. Wait, what? Did you just give John Hillcoat credit for making Assassination of Jesse James? Oh, no, my mistake. Sorry. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Okay, well, in that case... (laughs) Both he and uh, you mentioned, um, what's his name again? Um, Who? The director of Killing Them Softly. Oh, Andrew Dominic. Andrew Dominic. They both may use the same music of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis in a similar way to create that dreamlike feel. Like there is something very dreamy about their scores in all the films they work on. Yeah, totally. There's something, um, I guess it's like the only um, hint of, of kind of beauty in the film, unless you include, you know, Vigo fingering Charlie's at the opera or whatever, but that sort of lyrical piano against these um, very nicely composed but incredibly stark, horrible landscapes is a really interesting juxtaposition. And then, of course, you've got those really atonal hard sounds for cannibals and the people in the basement with no legs or whatever. But, yeah, it's a really, really great score. Um, maybe not Jesse James good but pretty damn good. I can't believe before we end this review, you've dropped the line, Vigo fingering Charlize at the opera. I, I don't even know if it was the opera. I'm pretty sure that um, The Atlantic or New York Times would have had that same quote in their review, but good to you. Well, you know, there's a whole swathe of people out there who that that might be the thing that pushes them over the line to seeing this movie. Perhaps they're opera fans or fingering fans. Or Vigo fans or Charlie's fans. Who knows? Although it's definitely not the opera. Maybe it's like a school recital. I don't know. <laughs> That's even worse. All right. We're going downhill fast. Let's move to our review 
of the Book of Eli. So, Gabe, walk me through it. Did you enjoy this? What worked for you and what didn't? I kind of like this movie. As I said before, it's one of those movies where I like the the stuff at the top, at the beginning of just Denzel, you know, trudging through, basically Fallout, the game, along those sort of sprawling highways and just fighting chainsaw-wielding pig-faced men. When it hits the the mechanics of the actual plot, it all gets a bit dull, you know. When he gets to the town and they're after the book and all that shit about, oh, Gary old man thinking, you know, he can control people with the Bible, which is kind of an interesting idea, but I don't know. I, I sort of start tuning out a little bit with that. But I like the look of the movie. I also like the score in this movie, just talking about, you know, Nick Cave's score for um, The Road. I think Atticus Leopold Ross's Atticus and, and Leopold Ross's score for This is Quite Nice, particularly the title title tune. Um, but, I mean, all in all, it's kind of a empty sort of exercise with a really baffling, would you call it a twist at the end? Yeah, it's, yeah. Do you want to spoil a twist? Go for it. I mean, do we want to talk, do you want to talk about that now or do you want to, you could give your uh, impressions and then we can loop around to just, just hammering the movie for that maybe. <laughs> yeah, okay. Look, I enjoy this film. I don't enjoy it nowhere near as much as The Road, but I enjoy it, so to speak. So that's the difference is that I appreciate The Road. It really moves me. But The Book of Eli is definitely more rewatchable because it's more of an action film and Denzel doing his Denzel thing, like an equaliser being Denzel. Uh, It's more of a classic action movie. It has more of a plot structure that's familiar with the three-act structure. The start of this film is spectacular when Denzel Washington, in a master shot, is killing all these guys in almost a silhouette. It reminds me of some of the Japanese films that Quentin Tarantino's ripped off in terms of just sort of showing everything in a full shot, but the shadows of the characters attacking him and so you see the knife. It looks like almost two-dimensional animation. It's spectacular. I find the bleach bypass look of the film, the desaturated look now 10 years later to be a little bit overdone. I mean, Three Kings made that popular around 99 or so. And so we had about 11 years of that look applied to post-apocalyptic movies. And apparently George Miller was then so annoyed by that because he'd actually used the same aesthetic himself in his original Mad Max trilogy that he deliberately then leaned into that really saturated orange aesthetic in Mad Max Fury Road to try and redefine himself against films like The Book of Eli that he felt had copied his look. So that's interesting. Um, I think Denzel's great. He always is. Um, He's just got so much presence, doesn't he? I mean- Oh, he's awesome. He's fantastic. You'd watch him do anything. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) they say, you know, you could watch some actors read the phone book and he is certainly one of those. Like he's just got so much incredible presence on screen, which is always important whenever you're a leading man. But in this film, it's particularly important because- He's meant to basically be the saviour. He's a Jesus-like figure delivering a message. So it's like Jesus version two. And he does feel that he is protected by the hand of God. And, yeah, sure, he uses massive violence and commits murder many times, but it's all about the greater good. I always find it a bit uncomfortable, like I mentioned earlier, when these stories lean so hard into religious overtones. That's because I'm an atheist, so... It's not my bag, 
But it works enough in this film. I'd say it's a very American idea of Christianity, which is, you know, um, freedom and belief is forged in violence. For me, I find the character or the performance by Mila Kunis to be the most annoying thing. I just find her a little bit screechy and she doesn't look like she's been out there, like she was born to this world, which apparently has been around for at least 30 years. Her teeth are perfect. Her skin is perfect. You mentioned the teeth before of the characters in The Road. She looks like she was dropped from Hollywood Boulevard onto the set of this film and it just doesn't work. They they could have chosen an actor who would still be very attractive but with more creases in her face. Someone looks like they lived a very hard life. I mean, she's been essentially pimped out by Gary Oldman's character as a prostitute. She can't be basically benefiting from the best dentistry or nutrition. And she kind of has this delivery in her dialogue which sounds just very of the time, 2010. It doesn't sound like someone who has been raised in a world where her mother is a prisoner to Gary Oldman's character. She doesn't seem cautious enough, scared enough, uh, doubtful enough about the good in humanity. She seems too earnest. She looks too sheltered when in reality she's had a very unsheltered life. So that performance by her didn't work for me and I would love to see another character. And apparently they were going to cast... Kirsten Stewart in this role, which I'm not saying is necessarily a better character, but as an actor, she brings more edge and attitude to her performances comparatively to Mila Kunis, and I would have preferred to see someone with a bit more of a rebellious and surly streak in that role. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a moment late in the movie where Mila Kunis has left the town of, what's the town called? It's got one of those movie names. Yeah. I forget, like... Proposition or New Redemption or some shit like that. Anyway, she's left the town and she stumbles upon a woman, you know, attached to a uh, a shopping cart and it's obviously a trap and we know it's a trap because we've seen a very similar um, scene earlier in the film. And I suppose it's supposed to show Mila Kunis's character's naivety, you know, outside of the – in the outside world. She has no idea how it operates. But it's like I don't believe that there will be any sheltering from anything in this universe – in a town where, yeah, you've been probably forcibly prostituted, where you have all these drifters and blow-ins and who are just murdering people out on the highways, I, you know, it's not like they're living in a dome. I agree. It just, it just doesn't kind of make sense. I think at one point Denzel locks her inside and says, you know, the world out there is much worse than you think it is. And it's like I just don't believe that she doesn't know that. <laughs> like, Yeah, I, I think the problem actually is her age. Had she been a character who's aged 12... She still would have seen a lot, but she would have seen less. And a character of the age of Cody Smith-McPhee, who plays the boy in The Road, would have been actually a better age for The Book of Eli. Because in this film, they actually don't have a romantic relationship. So you could have conceivably cast a young girl, so pre-teenager, and she could have basically seen Denzel Washington as a substitute father figure. And that would have made more sense in terms of naivety. And in some ways, for those scenes where she's attacked, it could have been even more threatening. You wouldn't have had to spend too much time on those scenes, but you'd get the idea that she's not safe in any any capacity at all. That worked better because if she's working in that bar, she comes in and she's been pushed in as a prostitute to try to have sex with Denzel Washington's character. She's obviously been asked to do that many times before. How can you work behind the bar and not 
in that particular bar in this particular town and not see the worst of humanity in that experience. Like she would see stories, she would witness murders. In some respects, I think she, as a character, would have been actually closer to that woman you mentioned before who's used as bait to try and trap people. I actually thought she'd be someone like that. That'd make more sense, someone who basically has been either enslaved mentally or physically by Oldman's character but only hangs around because if she leaves, she knows that Oldman will kill her mum out of revenge to punish her. But she'd be someone who looks and acts more like that. She'd be fearful. She'd have Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. And then at the end, the movie sort of makes it so is that she is the new Denzel wandering the earth to spread the good word. And it's like as a transformation, I don't know if I, uh, I don't know if I buy it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What do you think about the tropes of Denzel, the sunglasses, the fact that he is sensitive to light in some way, just his character? What do you think of that and what he brings to the role? Well, I mean, Denzel's good in everything. But, but are we talking about the ending? I know everyone wears sunglasses out in the, in the harsh desert light, but are we talking about the fact that it is revealed spoilers that he's blind or has been blind the whole time or hasn't been blind the whole time, it's not kind of clear, or uh, is blind um, and is in fact a blind swordsman with pinpoint gun shooting accuracy. Like, is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about that? See, this is the part of the film which is inconsistent. So the idea is that he has a Braille Bible, spoilers everyone. So the spoiler is... Essentially, he loses the Bible, which is basically something that Oldman's character, the villain, wants to weaponize to use to empower himself. And when Oldman finally gets a Bible, in this case, Eli's Bible, he discovers it's in Braille, which he can't read. The problem there I've got is if Eli is partially blind or has had some sort of damage either pre-existing or because of some sort of, I think they call it the flashing or something like that, like the flash of light that basically impaired the vision of many people around the world simultaneously. So I'm assuming it was like some sort of nuclear attack causes huge blast of light. If that's the case, the fact that he can basically fight people like this insane warrior is pretty silly. I get it with, say, Daredevil, which is a superhero character where he has heightened senses of smell and hearing, but that's set in a comic book movie world, in a comic book world. This is meant to be more naturalistic. Don't you think it's that thing, though, where because it's a, I don't know, it's not really a twist, is it, but because it's a reveal later, it makes you think back through the whole movie and just kind of go, what, really? Whereas if he was just blind from the get-go, you'd buy it a lot more. Do you know what I mean? Like Zatoichi, the blind swordsman, that, you know, uh, Japanese movie about the, the the blind samurai or ronin or whatever, they're up front about it. He's blind and you're like, fuck yeah, he's a badass motherfucker. He's blind and he's going to chop people up. Whereas this, when they make that a reveal, you just kind of flash back through the movie and go, wait, how is he so good at shooting? How is he so good at chopping people's heads off? And even then it's not kind of clear because his eyes are all cloudy at the end, but they weren't earlier but they put in a whole bunch of things where he's kind of like, you know, bumping into desks by accident or uh, smelling hijackers or whatever. It's just kind of unclear and weirdly reading on the internet. There's a whole bunch of theories and stuff which do not help for any kind of clarity with this. 
And it's just a, it just feels like an odd choice. I know, I think Eli in the Bible was blind. But even that thing that you said, like he's sort of divinely protected. You know, there's that sequence where Ray Stevenson playing Gary Oldman's number one goon fires at him and the bullet misses and he sort of stares at him and his gun and then later lets him go because there's this sense that perhaps Denzel is protected from up on high. And I don't know, it just sort of gives him boring plot armour. Yeah, that whole moment you're mentioning now, there's a very clear moment where Denzel ostensibly stares at, what's his name, Stevenson? Ray Stevenson. Yeah, and he stares back. And that makes sense in that moment. But if you subsequently find out that Denzel is blind, it doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) Yeah, who's he staring at? (laughs) Who's he staring at? Like, they're meant to be sharing a look, a gaze. That's the entire point of that scene. If you then go, oh, he's actually blind, well, then how do you have that visual transaction? No, it doesn't work. Yeah. And clearly he would have just fallen off a highway overpass at some point. Like, he'd just break his ankles stepping into a pothole. No matter how much you – it would be a full-time job for God just protecting this one schnook. A hundred percent. Let's do our combined review and jump to notable similarities, coincidence or ripoff. I'll kick it off. They both have in common cannibalism which makes sense in a world in which there's less food. Uh, you've got the bleach bypass desaturated visual look I mentioned earlier of the Book of Eli. How would you describe the visual aesthetic of the road? It's quite similar, isn't it? I mean, it's less high contrast, but it's very desaturated. Visually, I think these are very different movies. You know, Book of Eli uses a lot of those flat, long-lens shots where people are made to look kind of two-dimensional on the horizon and the sun, uh, not the sun, the sky, which looks like it's just a lot of sky replacement has been dropped in the in the back behind them. You know, I think although they're both set within the sort of post-apocalyptic sandbox, as I said earlier, they, they do still feel very, very different. You know, like even just their attitudes towards cannibalism. Uh, in the road, it's very kind of stark and horrible. You know, they stumble upon the people with their kind of legs cut off in the basement. Whereas in Book of Eli, it's kind of jocular. You know, like the, char- the characters played by Michael Gambon and Hoomst plays his wife. I'm not sure. Um, him and her, you know, they're cannibals, but it's kind of played for laughs. I'm not saying that's wrong. I think cannibalism in the post-apocalypse is a- could be very funny. But, you know, they're definitely sort of diametrically opposed in terms of their tones. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that reflects the fact that Despite being a film set in a post-apocalyptic world, The Book of Eli is definitely a sanitised version of that. Uh, The scene where you you mentioned the elderly couple who are cannibals, I mean, there's never any real sense that our two characters, Mila Kunos and Denzel Washington, are actually going to find themselves, you know, on their dinner plates that night. It's a momentary threat and they're kind of played as wacky characters where it seems to be more widespread, cannibalism that is, in the road and sort of sadly more normalised. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you would be – The Road is a movie where there's no animals left except for, except for the human animal. And as if you wouldn't be tucking in, you would be tucking in quick smart. Well, speaking of tucking in, I've got to give massive props to the starting sequence in The Book of Eli. That scene is fantastic where – describe it to the audience who haven't seen the film for a while. It's basically a scene of this – 
mangy shaved cat, which is actually a breed of cat, but it's that disgusting type of cat that I think Dr. Evil had. Hey, they're not disgusting. They're great. I love those hairless cats. Yeah, this is gross. Most people would agree <laughs> that hairless cats are gross. And this particular hairless cat is sniffing around at a dead body, potentially possibly to try and nibble on it or something. And then we see in a hazmat suit, revealed to be Denzel Washington shortly afterwards, this guy pulling this huge bow and arrow in a crossbow-style orientation and then fires it. The arrow flies through the air very much with that Matrix-esque bullet time effect in slow motion with the camera spinning around the very sharpie point of the arrow and then bang, straight through the abdomen of the cat. It's a cool sequence and it sets up the stakes of this guy is so hungry, not only will he eat a cat, he'll eat a hairless cat. And also, he's obviously in a world where cats are actually a food source. That's how bad these things are. So, you know, it's a very Hollywood um, style of both filmmaking and also introduction to the character. But I really liked it. Like, it sets up, this is the type of film. This is not the road. This is not a, you know, grounded, naturalistic version of the apocalypse. This is the Denzel version. Yeah, that's right. That's why he cuts off so many heads, something I appreciate. The the number of decapitations in this movie is high and I like that. Excellent. Now tell me, which film is aged better? Um, ha, I think in this current uh, climate both films are ageing quite well. Um, given that we can't know what the post-apocalypse would be like, I think, I think both of them have aged quite well in their various depictions of said end times, uh, you know, Perhaps, like you said earlier, the road in that it's just sort of unrelenting, grim view of humanity probably feels closer to a truth rather than the expectation that someone will come and save us. Yeah, I agree with that. The only thing that really stands out to me in the Book of Eli is the depiction of the iPod, which is pretty important in terms of being his point of escapism to listen to music, which takes him back 30 years But in that film, it's kind of played as an antique. Like it's something which he would have had from the time which this film was made around the early 2010s and it's his personal saviour to get him by. In terms of just general practical stuff, the CGI stands up, the filmmaking styles generally stand up. The film doesn't feel dated by its aesthetic or its tone no one's playing Nickelback on the soundtrack, so the music stands up in that regard. So I don't know. That's a missed opportunity, if you ask me. <laughs> well, wouldn't that be a reflection of the times in the post-apocalypse? Everyone's playing Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. If you want to truly depict the grimmest of all realities. <laughs> um, any other plot holes or missed opportunities? What could the filmmakers have done better with the high concept of either of these films? Hmm. Interesting. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Was there anything that you felt... Um, was missing from either of them? No, I think they walked the line quite well. Let's start with The Road. I like the ending of The Road in that by having the veteran played by Guy Pearce and the family at the end, because they're a family unit, you know, seemingly so, then it's enough to make you think that kid will probably be okay and the film has a bleak but happy ending. Whereas had it been just an old creepy man by himself, you'd fear for the life of the boy. So I think they walk that balance quite well at the end. 
Uh, we mentioned in the Book of Eli the potential plot hole or the inconsistency with the reveal that Eli's actually blind. Yep, if you go through the film on a second or third viewing knowing that, and I'd actually forgotten that. I'd actually forgotten that he was blind. So I was watching this film again with a fresh set of eyes, in which case I didn't notice that. Watching it again, I'd like to kind of reinterrogate those scenes to see how they stand up. But, yeah, more or less, I think both films hold together. The only other thing you could have done, I think, with Book of Eli is added a bit more complexity with perhaps Gary Oldman's character in terms of what his backstory was. I'd be curious to know, like, if they were able to sort of somehow convey that he was an ex-CEO or an ex-pastor or something like that, that'd be interesting. It's clear that he wants the book to try and unify or galvanise his followers, much like many people over the years in cults have done, under the word of God as a way to try and bring people together. And, like, why start from scratch when someone allegedly has already done this once before called Jesus? So, hey, if it worked the first time, why not do it the second time as well? So I kind of like that. I like that idea I would like to have known more about his backstory in some way to understand why he thought this was the way to do it. Yeah, he, he, he sort of starts out interesting in that, you know, you get a sense that he maybe just wants the best for his town and he sees finding a copy of the Bible as a way, yeah, like you said, to galvanise. But pretty quickly he becomes kind of a bit of a stock Villain. I mean, we need to believe that every single Bible in the entirety of the US had somehow been burnt. At some point, I think someone said some sort of throwaway line about um, the Bible was the cause of the, you know, or religious disagreement was the cause of whatever the Great War that sort of wiped out civilization. But fuck, man, just go find a copy of, you know, L. Ron Hubbard book or something. Like, just find any old bullshit and use that. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Actually, now that you mention that, that's a great idea. I would have liked to have seen them amplify that concept that it was religion that tore everyone apart and in some people's eyes it'll be religion that brings them together. That's really interesting. I would have liked to have seen that film teased out more than it actually was. Yeah, yeah. All right. Why don't we uh, jump to our trivia? What do you say? Let's do it. All right. Let's start with The Road. This is so Viggo Mortensen. Get this. He would actually sleep in his clothes and deliberately starve himself, which makes sense because he's always been very method in that way. And at one point, um, he was thrown out of a shop in Pittsburgh because they thought he was homeless, which just sounds so classically Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you and I have joked about our opinion of actors doing method, but uh, in this case, I'll allow it. Well, speaking of more method, apparently Viggo Mortensen and Cody Smith-McPhee reportedly bonding by eating crickets to help them get into character. So there you go. Gross. Um, Apparently, another thing that happened was that Coke scene you mentioned earlier where... Viggo Mortensen's character gives the boy a can of Coke, his first can of Coke, from a vending machine. That was actually filmed several times because, you know, in this world where companies are so protective of their image, the director, John Hillcoat, was fearful that Coca-Cola would say no. So they filmed the scene multiple times with different Coke brands. But in the end, it took a telephone call directly from Viggo Mortensen to the president of Coca-Cola, which secured permission to use the can of Coke in the film, just like the novel. Huh, there you go. So what did they also shoot that scene with, like, um, uh, Apple Fanta? Yeah, or Mountain Dew. Ooh, fuck yeah. <laughs> That'd be awesome. The other interesting thing is that this film was made around the time of Hurricane Katrina. 
So a lot of the visual style of the film was based on that. They actually filmed a lot of locations which had been destroyed by Katrina. So they got the benefit of the tax breaks to make the film more efficiently, more cheaply, but they're also able to incorporate a lot of destruction that had already gone through. And apparently a lot of crew working on the film had also been victims of Katrina as well. So apparently the mood on set was very sombre uh, because people sort of identified with a future version of what had just happened in recently in their present. Yeah, right. I mentioned earlier also that Gary Witter uh, had a credit before, many, many credits as a writer of video games. Well, this was actually an original story of his as the sole creator and writer. And apparently this screenplay was featured in the 2007 Blacklist, which is a competition in the US essentially where various executives around the town identify the best unmade screenplays that exist. And this was one of the most liked unmade scripts of the year. The only other funny thing I found was that apparently Cody Smith-McPhee got this job by doing a recording of his audition, but the scene that they actually did was his father, who's an actor in Australia, recreated the scene opposite him playing the man where he shows the boy how to kill himself by placing a pistol in his mouth. So of all the scenes in the screenplay, Dad encouraged his son to try and show him how to shoot himself. So <laughs> Yeah, wow. That's interesting. I mean, thinking about it, maybe the actual moral choice is to kill your son in this uh, in this world. In a world so devoid of hope, with no chance of any sense of uh, a rebuilding of civilization, isn't it just spending day after day waiting for some sort of miserable, probably much worse demise? Exactly. It's something like that, isn't it? It's pretty depressing. Yeah. And I know that's not trivia related. It's more uh, just a just a philosophical thought that bounced into my head. But um, yeah, Vigo should have murdered his own son as the correct moral choice. Yeah. Thanks, Gabe. You keep those ideas coming. That's very positive. It's a late, 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 late term abortion. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> All right, let's jump to trivia. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, man. The Book of Eli. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of losing weight, Denzel Washington also lost some weight for his performance. Not quite as much as Viggo Mortensen, but he lost about 50 pounds in preparation for the role. And he also did all of his own stunts. He spent months learning the hand-to-hand fight sequences under the tutelage of Bruce Lee's protege, Dan Inosanto, which is interesting. So it's a type of martial art called Kali, I think it is. So isn't Kali the martial arts we see in the Bourne films as well? Or is that something else? Oh, that's some sort of like Krav Magra. That's right. Every time they release a movie where there's hand-to-hand combat, I always learn about some mysterious martial art, which I hadn't heard of before, which isn't karate or judo or taekwondo, but it's always incredibly cool. And then you discover that this has apparently been a martial art of that country for like the last 500 years. And some stunt coordinator has been on a backpacking holiday, discovered it and thought, you know what? In the next Bourne film or the next Book of Eli, we're going to incorporate that bad boy. Yeah, you're right. And so they do. They never they never put out a new a new movie, Mark Wahlberg, in Mile 22, and he's like, fuck yeah, I learned karate for this shit. That's right. <laughs> like karate seems real old fashioned now. Like, oh, it needs to be, yeah, some sort of you could only learn it in the uh, the top of the tallest mountain in like distant Laos, you know. Totally, totally. All right, let's uh, go to casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. Uh, there weren't many plans for the road to cast anyone else. Um, but in Book of Eli, I did mention earlier that Kirsten 
Dunst, not Kirsten Dunst. Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart. She was considered first for the role, which was eventually taken by Mila Kunis. And the role of Gary Oldman, as you call him, that was actually the casting suggestion of Denzel, who's actually a producer on this film. Um, yeah. What, what, are you saying I'm pronouncing Gary Oldman's name wrong? Well, how do you pronounce antique? Antique? Well, yeah. How do you pronounce it? <laughs> uh, like I said the first time. But you know what? I love your irony. There's no silent letters in old man. It's hilarious. <laughs> there's, a, there's a U and an E in antique. You know, old man is just old man. Gary, old man. I'm pretty sure he pronounced it old man. I don't understand what you're talking about. Let's jump to Spot the Aussie. <laughs> what are you, French? We. <laughs> oui. All right, Spot the Aussie. So the road. Uh, look, it speaks for itself, right? But kick it off. Which Aussies appeared in the road? Well, you obviously have Cody Smith-McPhee. And uh, Guy Pearce at the very end. And Guy Pearce at the very end. Did you spot any of Book of Eli? No, did you? No. No, I did not. All right, punching forward. So marketing methodology, madness and missteps. In the road, we mentioned earlier, that was actually meant to be released one year beforehand, but it was bumped and bumped and bumped by the Weinsteins to try and find a better, less competitive weekend and then eventually got into the Venice Film Festival in 2009 and then was released later on 2009 to try and get some awards attention, which unfortunately it wasn't nominated for any or many Oscars at all. But it basically wasn't embraced. I suspect the Weinsteins didn't think it'd be a particularly financially successful film and as it transpired they were right. So that brings me to the box office. Have a guess, Gabe. Let's go through the box office. Which movie was the box office champ? Well, I feel pretty safe in guessing that The Book of Eli was the champ. Yeah, that's right. So The Road was made for $25 US million and made $8 million in America plus another 19 and a half internationally for a grand total of $27.5 million. So $27.5 million off a $25 million budget, knowing that you've got to basically make three times your budget at the box office to break even, says it all. The road didn't do well. Though that being said, for a movie that costs $25 million, it looks pretty great. Like it looks much more expensive than that. Yeah, I agree. And I think it was cheaper because they made it with tax credits, but also they filmed the locations that have been destroyed by Hurricane Katrina which then minimised computer-generated effects. So I think that made it a little bit cheaper. They were shooting on location, which can be expensive, but location looked pretty desolate and destroyed, which helped them out. Now, jumping to the Book of Eli, it was made for $80 million. It made $94.5 million in the US, plus $62 million internationally for a grand total of $157 million off an $80 million budget. So... Kind of in the same ballpark that most of Denzel's films cost and make. He's not as popular as he used to be. We're living in a world, increasingly so, which is about existing forms of intellectual property like DC and Marvel superheroes. And his films tend to be those films that attract people like you and I and our dads. Ha. Well, look, the longer Denzel stays away from appearing in, you know, some... Marvel or DC movie, the better, I say. I actually think he said words to that effect in interviews. So he's quite happy, like Tom Cruise, sticking to non-superhero stories. All right, let's jump to then the critics. So have a guess. I don't know. This is, I, 
I'm, my feeling is that the road probably got pretty good reviews, but I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. So maybe the, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess equal. They were equally reviewed, middle of the road. Okay, it may surprise you or not that the road has 73 percent with a tomato score of fresh, and the Book of Eli has 47 percent by critics. Now, interestingly enough. Audiences for The Road, 68% versus 64% for The Book of Eli. So I'm surprised by that. I would have thought that The Book of Eli would be much, much higher with fans and I'm not surprised that critics didn't like it. But apparently uh, the grimness of The Road was more popular. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, right. Wow. All right. It's time, baby. It's time. Let's start with the awards. Are you ready, Gabe? Are you primed? Are you pumped? Let's do it. Pumped. Woo. Yeah. Okay. Best title, The Road versus The Book of Eli. Uh, I'm going to give it to The Road. Because it says what it is on the tin? Well, Ben, funny you bring that up because, you know, that is a constant uh, thing I like to needle you with, but it doesn't really, though, does it? It should be called Man and Boy Trudge Across Country <laughs> in Post-Apocalyptic Setting. Yeah, nice. Uh, I like The Book of... Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I like The Book of Eli because... It's a nice play on how we talk about other books in the Bible. So it is that same expression but just replaces the name of a an apostle with Eli's name. Very clever. Okay. I would have called it uh, uh, Doomsday Decapitator. I would have called it Apocalyptic Martial Arts. <laughs> Sweet. I'd see that movie. Or Blind Justice. Just call it Denzel Fuck Shit Up in the post-apocalypse. Call it the... Sequel, or would you call it the prequel to the Equalizer? No, it, like who's to say that after the events of the Equalizer, uh, Denzel's character in that movie, uh, what was his character's name in that? John. Jonathan Equalizer. No, it was Robert McCall. In fact, was this fellow in um, ooh, ooh, ooh. Book of Eli? I mean, the age doesn't quite work. Take that idea, put a pin in it. Okay. Let's say that for our pitch. That's good. I like that. But he certainly, his character certainly possesses many of the exact same traits in that he's indestructible, unstoppable and charismatic. He's Denzel. All right. Yeah, that's right. Let's jump to the best poster. To describe it for the audiences who haven't seen the posters, essentially the road has a couple of posters. One is pretty... Black and white, it's quite desaturated. The other one is a bit more colourful. But either way, it shows Viggo Mortensen at a 45-degree angle standing, either trying to shelter the boy behind him or standing by himself. He looks pretty grim. He looks unshaven. The film looks bleak. Book of Eli is more of a portrait sort of visual of Denzel Washington, very desaturated, shows a wall of destruction behind him with a gun on his shoulder. What do you think, Gabe? Who takes the cake? Neither are particularly interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think neither is. I prefer the profile shot of Book of Eli. If you're going to show Denzel, it's a bit more interesting than just showing him front on. But, yeah, neither poster is very good. Mm, It's a tussle. I like the shot in the road which has him holding out his hand to protect his boy. That's more emotional for me. So I'm going to say very narrowly and not by a big margin at all, it goes to the road. Fair. Okay, the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. 
Who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time with, first of all, let's start with The Road. Well, I guess isn't uh, Cody Smith-McPhee. This really um, kicked off his sort of international career. He'd been in Romulus, My Father, which is quite a good film here in Australia, and um, The Tenderhook, but The Road certainly put him on that international uh, map and then he's appeared in things like, you know, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, X-Men Apocalypse where he plays Nightcrawler, I think, um, and he's in Dolomite Is My Name. So I would give it to Cody. I agree with that. So let's look at the Book of Eli. Um, no, I don't know. And that, does, is there anyone in this? I mean, Denzel was already quite established and Gary Oldman, I'd, I'd seen him in things before. It was nice to see Jennifer Beals again, but it's not like she was a fresh face. Yeah, I think this film, if anything, is actually about a lot of older characters coming back. So I guess you'd say for Mila Kunis, it basically gave her a vehicle to move away from TV. So at a stretch, but we're going from a very successful American sitcom to this film isn't a giant leap. Let's give it to Cody in the road. Good times. Jumping to the Before They Were Famous Award or the Blink and You'll Miss Them. Starting with The Road, any contenders, Gabe? Any contenders for before they were famous? No, I don't think there's anyone. Did you spot anyone? Yeah, I had Molly Parker who plays Motherly Woman at the very end. She is the wife of Guy Pearce's character and appears for only a few seconds at the end of the film. She's gone on to have a great career in both House of Cards and Lost in Space. Dude, she was in Deadwood. And I really like her, so I'm giving it to her. She was in Deadwood before this. I haven't seen that. What the fuck? <laughs> okay, well, you can give her the award later on. Okay. <laughs> when it goes to the award for the Stephen Toblowski Award. No, there's other contenders for that. <laughs> All right, okay. Under Book of, Book of Eli, I mean, I guess Mila Kunis, but she was already famous. So, okay. I don't know. Who, who are we thinking? Who wasn't anything then? I guess you could say Cody Smith McPhee again, but it, okay. at a stretch. Let's call it a dead rubber. Okay, yeah, fine. No awards are coming to John Hillcoat. Right, dead rubber. Or the Hughes brothers. Okay, let's jump to the Tommy Lee Jones Stiller Award. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? Well, I mean, I wouldn't call it poorly written, but the road is certainly full of, you know, uh, one and done actors turning up for a single scene, sometimes kind of memorably, and then either being killed or just trudging away, you know, uh, Robert Duvall, Michael Kenneth Williams, uh, Garrett Dillahunt, who's always great in stuff. I've got those guys all getting an award each coming up. So, oh, so, so who? Special categories just for them. Okay. Wow. Uh, the Garrett Dillahunt category. So you're saying we need to, you're suggesting we need to choose someone other than those guys? You don't have to. Look, I'm going to be controversial and say that on the page, there wouldn't be very much on the page, even though it was written well, for the role of boy, but I think Cody Smith McAfee injects a lot of humanity into that performance because a lot of it's actually non-dialogue, and he does an excellent job in just conveying vulnerability and sadness really well, particularly for someone who didn't have many acting credits beforehand. So it's a show stealer award, and I actually think that he gave Vigo a good run for his money. So I'm giving it to Cody Smith McAfee. Okay, just just before we do. Cody Smith-McVee versus Evan Jones in 
um, Book of Eli. He plays the goon who Denzel beats up in the bar. You might remember him from Eight Mile, where he played Cheddar Bob, and he shot himself in the you know what ball sack. You're right. Give it to him. He was fantastic. He's good. <laughs> oh come on! He's, he was he was pretty good. Yeah, he was pretty good. All right, the Dustin Diamond Award. Uh, who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in this film? Hmm. You got anyone? Yeah. What do you think? I've got the directors from the Book of Eli, the Hughes brothers. The Hughes brothers. Yeah, they haven't done enough. This was was an eighty million dollar film with Denzel Washington. And if you look at IMDb, they haven't kicked on with enough decent credits with this film under their belts. They had the film in 2001 with Johnny Depp from Hell. Mm-hmm. Then they had this film later on. I mean, I'm sure they've made a bucket load of TV commercials and so on. But I would have thought they could have actually parlayed this film into certainly many more credits, either on high-quality TV shows than they've worked on or something else. I think this film was the last film they directed as the Hughes brothers and they... Ah, that would explain it then. They split after this. Um, Alan Hughes went on to make uh, Broken City, that uh, Marky Mark and Russell Crowe movie about, you know, police corruption and uh, whatever it was. Did you ever see that one? No. Um, And Albert Hughes has done some TV stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know the, the circumstances, if it was a, what do you say, acrimonious brotherly split or not. But um, there you go. All right. So I'm going to the Hughes brothers then, unfortunately for them. Fair. All right, the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high? So starting with The Road, I'm giving it to Vigo and the director, John Hillcote. Do you think this is John Hillcote's best movie? Well, I'm not saying it's his best movie, but I think who came out on top on this movie. Mm, yes, I do. I think this is Hillcote's best movie. We're comparing it to Lawless and The Proposition, aren't we? And Triple Nine. And Triple Nine. I'm going to say it's his best movie, and I think he and Vigo would be tying for, you know, who stole the show here. How about you? I am... Always partial to uh, heat ripoffs, and I feel I'll be watching Triple Nine more times in the future than The Road, albeit The Road is a better film. Um, but yeah, I think it's fair to give it to uh, Jonathan Hillcott. How about Book of Eli? Book of Eli. I don't know. What do you reckon? Uh, look, I don't think anyone was being their best performance. I, I, I think who stole the show, I would say Denzel. He always does. It's not his best performance in his career, but. Of everyone in that film, I think he's the best person working on top of his game. So if it comes down to Denzel from Book of Eli versus John Hillcote, Johnny Boy gets it. Okay, fair, fair. All right, Best Dialogue Award. Were there any quotes that you liked in either film? I actually like this line in The Road where the man says, do you ever wish to die? And the old man responds, no, it's foolish to ask for luxuries in times like this. Oh, yeah. Weirdly, that old man is name of Eli. That's right. Okay. Coincidence or ripoff? I'd say coincidence. Yeah, definitely. I don't think Robert Duvall is playing um, Denzel's character. I don't think so. I always like the line where the man says to the boy, I will kill anyone who touches you because that's my job. I just like that idea that at this point now, the role of a father 
is just to keep his son alive. There's just something incredibly powerful about that. Any other quotes before we move on to the book of Eli? Um, the boy, it's bubbly. Oh, uh, in reference to Coca-Cola? Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. The Road is one of those movies where the dialogue is so sparse and stripped back. You know, it's not It's it's, it's not one of those, like, quotable, uh, full of zingers. Yeah, I agree. You know. Jump jump to zingers then and Denzel. Denzel loves zingers. Oh, okay. Uh, well, he certainly loves a Bible quote. I like the part where he goes, where Carnegie says, and who are you? Eli says, nobody. Carnegie says, oh, I doubt that. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I like uh, people had more than they needed. We had no idea what was precious and what wasn't. We threw away things people kill each other for now. Yeah. You know, I was like, I, I get it. I get it. Deep. All right, let's jump on, shall we? Uh, so I guess uh, Dead Rubber. I'm not giving anyone an award for this one. Okay, we'll keep that award. Okay. The Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. I'm going to go with Charlie's Theron from the Road. Really? That's an interesting choice. Yeah. I thought if you could possibly overdo playing distant, I thought she did. <laughs> I just didn't buy her. Like she was too distant in some of these scenes and I didn't buy the final sequence of the end, spoiler, where she ostensibly walks out into the night cold and, you know, dies either by suicide or is taken by someone. I didn't. I just didn't work for me on screen. So, but I, I, I don't think to 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 give Charlize a little bit of credit. I think that's much more to do with just like all she has to play in every single scene is some sort of like postpartum depression or or just malaise and we ennui ennui and you I ennui one of those one of those ennui. Um, and, and you know, just having the occasional shot of her every 15 minutes or, oh, just check in with old Sad Sack here, particularly when we know the ending to her story and that she's not travelling with them. Okay, well, how's this? The next award is the Taking a Paycheck Award. So I reckon she gets the paycheck for the road. Okay. But going back to the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award, how about Gary Oldman in The Book of Eli? I would have liked more scenery chewing. Oh, uh, really? Oh, yeah, it's not enough. G- given that he gave one of the greatest scenery chewing performances of all time. In The Professional. In No, True Romance. Oh, uh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So many. The bar, the bar for Gary Oldman is set so high for the level of scenery chewing that I want because he's one of those actors who can do it. Man, like he could do it and he could do it in such a way where I'm I'm there for it. But I'm kind of disappointed that he didn't he didn't he didn't hit it harder. All right. I think the guy that your mate from the bar who's the guy has his has his head smashed in, he must be surely on the list because he's acting pretty big. Okay. So what's his name? Um oh uh Evan Jones. But Michael Gambon and Francis de la Tour as George and Martha, I mean, they, they turn up and chew the scenery as a pair of elderly cannibals. Yeah. In fact- Okay, they can get it. Her particularly. Okay, done. She, she gets the award. All right. Now, jumping back to taking a paycheck award, I had Charlize in The Road and Tom Waits in The Book of Eli. What do you mean? Come on. I love it when Tom Waits turns up in movies. Tommy's after some cash. It's fine if he got paid. Cash money. Yeah, that's true. He didn't really have anything to do whatsoever. He just- just running a little shop there. That's why he's taking a paycheck. Okay. Because he wasn't there for the artistic challenge. He was just getting some some green, baby. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Uh, I'm actually, I'm actually going to give it to Charlize overall because she's an Oscar winner. She could have chosen many roles and I'm pretty sure the Weinsteins just said, 
here's a few million dollars for a few days' work. Come on. Okay. Look look pretty. Okay. So I'll give it to Charlize. All right. Jumping to the Stephen Toblowski Award. It's the Hey, It's That Guy. So for the road, I had Michael Kenneth Williams. Okay. Yep. Uh, He's definitely Hey, It's That Guy. Omar. How about you? Um, I mean, the road's pretty good for it, right? Michael Kenneth Williams, Garrett Dillahunt, as we said. I would say it's a toss-up between those guys. You know, you know who Robert Duvall is. You you remember him from The Godfather or some other movie he was in. But but Garrett Dillahunt, you're like, where have I seen this guy? Who's this guy? I've got Garrett Dillahunt down for the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Okay. So I'm, I'm saving him for that award. So, so you're saying you want to give this to Michael K. Williams? Yeah. How about you? Okay, well, let's give it to Michael K. Williams playing the character of Thief. And who's he up against from the Book of Eli? What about Ray Stevenson? Oh, yeah? Okay. I would say in that case Michael wins because he's comparatively, he's actually in that weird sort of sweet spot where he's very iconic with his visual scar on his face, but he also is someone whose name escapes everyone. Whereas Ray Stevenson looks familiar, but he's just a bland white guy. Dude, he was the best Punisher in the best Punisher movie. And that I agree with, but I'm still giving it to Michael K. Williams. Okay, give it to Michael K. Williams. I think most people, when they see him on screen, just are like, there's Omar. From The Wire. It's Omar from The Wire. Exactly. Yep. Yep. All right. All right. Uh, So jumping back to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough, I had Garrett Dillahunt for The Road versus Jennifer Beals in The Book of Eli. Yeah, Jennifer Beals should be in more movies. She's fantastic. She's always good value when she turns up. So who's your winner? Garrett Dillahunt. I love that guy. Done. Garrett, there's an award coming your way by Express Post once this whole coronavirus thing is over. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. So who steals the cake, Gabe, for the most ludicrous name? Well, no one really in the road because they're all just given names like man, boy, old man, veteran, motherly woman. So, you know. It's almost like anti this award, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I presume Molly Parker's character's name, motherly woman, isn't in fact her real name. <laughs> and that, I mean, it's a bold choice to name your child motherly woman. Actually, you know what? I'm going give, to give this award to the entire film because- those names are so bland, they almost deserve recognition by themselves. I mean, I guess they're a nod to the book where, you know, the characters just called the man and the boy. And kind of disappointingly in Book of Eli, they don't have silly enough names. I mean, the closest you come is Gary Oldman as Carnegie. But, you know, give him a, give him a surname. Like some cool, or maybe that is his surname. Make that his first name. Yeah, call him Carnegie Hall. No, like Carnegie, Carnegie Rex. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. I like that. Very good. Okay. Uh, I'm going to actually, the, for the first time ever, I'm going to actually give the award to one of your made-up names, which actually doesn't exist in the credits, but it's actually better than what's actually on screen. So Gabe gets it for Carnegie Rex. Or, or Ray Stevenson. He could be Red Ridge Shoe Leather. Oh, nice. I like it. All right. <laughs> I don't know. Jumping to the Memento Award, named for moments you completely forgot about until you watched these movies again. Um, yeah, yeah. As I said earlier, I forgot. The, I forgot that Eli was blind. Did you? Yeah. Uh, that, no, that's the bit that I always watch it. And I'm like looking for them clues, like putting this shit together, like I'm bloody like trying to figure it out. Like, what were they thinking with this stuff? Yeah. I look. That's that's got to that's got to take the cake though, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. 
Now, the Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard inspiring a subgenre of an everyday hero who's up against a group of baddies in a single location, like Under Siege. So if imitation is the ultimate flattery, did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones or are they themselves just clones? I mean, they certainly didn't invent the genre. I'd say the Walking Dead TV series, I'm not sure when the comic book was written, but in terms of like picking up on the whole idea of living in a world full of cannibals and, you know, a lot of the themes of both these movies mashed together, I'd say that that TV series is in the spirit of these movies, but zombies predate these movies by a long way. So I don't think these films are going to be inspiring people going forward. 2003, Ben. 2003 was when The Walking Dead comic book started. Exactly. So they're ripping off The Walking Dead. Well, perhaps. But but if you look at the list of the number of post-apocalyptic movies going all the way back to, you know, 1950s, there's at least five of them. So I would say these are not trailblazers in that regard. All right. Well, maybe we should blaze a trail because it's come to that time of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So let's imagine this, Gabe. Mm -hmm. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to The Road or The Book of Eli. Some big Hollywood producers come to us and said, right, is there a possibility we can make a movie, a sequel, about a man on a mission to find his way through a dangerous post-apocalyptic world in order to save others? Gabe, we need some cash. We need some coin. The movie industry has crumbled after the coronavirus, but this whole idea of films about zombies or the apocalypse or pandemics are also hot right now. Let's go. Let's do it. Which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it? Well, how do both movies end? The, the Book of Eli sort of ends with a sequel idea in mind with Mila Kunis being the new, the new, the new Denzel. Do we want to do that? Maybe not. So we've lost our lead characters to death, spoiler, for both these films. We've lost Viggo Mortensen in The Road. We've lost... Denzel Washington in the Book of Eli. So we've got Cody Smith-McPhee, who from a Hollywood agent perspective, he's made a few of those X-Men films. So, you know, he's still hot right now. He could potentially carry it. But Mila Kunis is comparatively more famous from all of her rom-coms and so on. So she could actually hold the fire for a sequel in Book of Eli. Look, it comes down to this. The Road didn't make much coin. It only made about $27 million, whereas The Book of Eli made $157 million and Mila Kunis is more famous. Okay, okay. But- I'm thinking it's got to be The Book of Eli. But just just, just for one second, Ben, I just got a little pitch for you. What about, though, if we were like, The Road has a certain level of name recognition, but it was just a real downer. Is there a way to course correct this series, The Road series, and maybe lighten the mood a little bit? I like it. So we basically take the credibility, the Venice Film Festival rubber stamp of the road and then do a sequel which is set in that world, which basically could be any post-apocalyptic world, and recast new characters that don't necessarily even have to encounter Kobe Smith-McPhee and either do a Netflix TV series 
or a standalone movie with what more hijinks? Yeah, like maybe things. Uh, you know, just more kung fu. Yeah, totally. Things like the road two. Things are getting better. The road two. Still long. Yeah, that's right. Okay, okay. No, I, I think you're right, though. I think you're right. It probably does not have the name recognition necessary for a whole raft of DTV sequels. And, hey, we're not even in the DTV business, man. We're in the, the, the theatrically released business, the, the, the business of cinema, if those things still continue to exist in the future. Okay, so, look, let's go with the book of Eli we can also tap into the religious crowd. Those uh, films are doing quite well at the box office, or they were before the coronavirus pandemic. So we know that people turn to religion, to faith in times of crisis. The Book of Eli very much has a spine of a story through it about faith. So let's go. It's the Book of Eli sequel. It's got Mila Kunis in the lead role. What's it about? Well, do we have to have her in the lead role? Could it not be that we pick up 10 years later on Alcatraz and those, um, those smart guy scientists who are there realise that they only have half the book and they got to go out and find the other half, some bullshit like that, you know, and then we can just sort of soft reboot with a new protagonist. Okay, so what happens is it's the reverse. If the whole film in the book of Eli is about Denzel Washington's character trying to get the book to this Alcatraz island... In the sequel, it's the reverse. A young boy has to go out into the world. Oh, yeah, I like it. To try and source the other half for the book, and it transpires. I mean, it doesn't have to be a boy. Well, it could be, a, it could be a, a young woman, and she goes out to try and source it, and she goes to get the source book, which is the one in Braille revealed at the end of the first movie, from Gary Oldman, who's now become a character not dissimilar to the villain in Mad Max Fury Road. He's really kind of leaned into his villainous. He's become like the worst version of himself. And now he's even more terrifying than before. So we've got the capacity to bring back the brand recognition of Gary Oldman. I mean, how hard do we want to lean into this religious business? Do we really want to cater this film for the God botherer crowd? I mean, your idea that- I think we have to. It's the Well, why not? It's the first film and we're also in a pandemic. I reckon that's our strength. People are, people are eager for the word of God. So in that way, maybe your idea about um, if the first one was about getting to Alcatraz, this one is about leaving. But what if, what if they had the whole book? So it's a heist film. It's a post-apocalyptic heist film where basically- Maybe. The, uh, the book now has been kept behind bars by Gary Oldman. And our lead character, this woman, has to break in. So think about Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, where basically these guys have their own fortress. Imagine rather than having, what was that name of that guy with the uh, the fetish wear on the outside? Ah, oh, the Ayatollah of Rock and Roller. Uh, no, the guy. <laughs> I love that guy. Yeah. I am the Ayatollah of Rock and Roller. He's so good. I thought it was. I thought it was humongous. Yeah, he's the great humongous dude, the Ayatollah yeah. of rock and roller. Fuck, I love the great humongous. What if our character is the humongous character and has to break in? She can be wearing fetish wear if she wants, like Tina Turner style, and she has to break into the fortress with the help of her motley crew to try and steal back the other half of the book that's in Braille. I would like a movie that combines the. Um, you know, or is seriously aimed at a religious crowd, but also includes a whole bunch of leather fetish wear. <laughs> like, I feel we, we, we might be making two different movies there, um, but uh, nonetheless, I'm there for it. 
So essentially, we're basically doing a soft reboot of The Road Warrior, reversing the antagonists and the protagonists, and it's the sequel to The Book of Eli. Yeah. Is that where we stand? But it has the the sort of vibe of Heat. Oh, right. Or Den of Thieves or Triple Nine. Yeah, probably more Den of Thieves than Heat. Okay. I, I, I've struggled to imagine the coffee shop scene in Heat if they were both wearing fetish wear and it was the distant future. But, you know, who knows? They sit down at a table on a hill and someone pours a glass of alcohol that's been distilled from potatoes and they basically have a moment where the question is, will there be a truce? And our young character, who's dressed like Tina Turner but only 15, who has this ragtag team, says to Gary Oldman across the table, this is your chance to walk away. Yeah, a a 15-year-old dressed like Tina Turner says to Gary Oldman, who's dressed like the great humongous, we're sitting here like a couple of regular guys. So Gary Oldman's there with fetish wear, with black leather underpants, suspenders. Why not? The whole bit. He's got a... He's got, He's got a ball in his mouth. And a, and a black skull. <laughs> a black skull. I have a recurring dream too. I have a recurring dream too. <laughs> Why not? With a, with a black skull cap, he's wearing the same clothes that the gimp wears in Pulp Fiction. Ben, I have a feeling that um, uh, we, we keep turning up to these pitches at these studios. We're going to get run out of town pretty soon. They always end up in kind of like kind of weird weird territory, weird territory. But But- I have to say, I would watch this movie. So bring it home then. What's the last act? The last act is the heist, right? They break in. Now, the question is, do they break in surreptitiously like most heists or do they break in with like guns blazing and combinations of weird, you know, um, Molotov Molotov cocktails being thrown over the top? What is the vibe at the end? Is it a quiet heist or do they storm the fortress? Oh, surely it's got to be a quiet heist, right? Yeah, that makes our film different to most post-apocalyptic movies where it's just guns blazing. This one's where they sneak in and then what's – is there a twist? Does she get the book in the end or not? Well, what about if they've realised that, in fact, Gary Oldman from the first movie was right, that this is a powerful weapon and the twist is that she destroys the very last Bible – uh, in a plot twist that will clearly infuriate our target audience, but in fact reveal that this movie was for those leather daddies all along. So she stands basically at on top of a hill at the end and rather than holding two tablets like Moses, she essentially declares the crowd below her as she's holding a a flame on a stick below the Bible. She says, this is what tore us apart. It can bring us together but could also make the worst of us. And then she burns it. And then she says, also, I'm deaf. Oh, that, that's like a twist on the blind part from the first movie. Yeah, just why not? Right. Just throw it in there. It doesn't really matter. It just throws it in there. Whatever. You know. So are there any superheroes? Because we talked about how Daredevil, for example, could be the Daredevil is basically the inspiration behind Denzel Washington's character in the Book of Eli. Is there like a character with a hearing impairment that exists in the Marvel DC world that's basically analogous for our character. A Is there a deaf superhero? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, because that could basically be the template for our character. She's got super eyesight capacity. So in the desert, for example, she's able to sort of fire a bow and arrow, you know, at long distances without seeing the mirage. That's her expertise. So she's like the 
complementary character to Denzel Washington from the first film, but it's her sight that's her strength, not her hearing. Mm. Uh, yeah, why not? Why not? All right, so let's bring this home. What is the title of our sequel? Is it just called The Book of Julie? Yeah, I mean, we could make a whole bunch of these, really. You just call them the book of, just the book of whomever, the book of Steve. All right. You know. Okay, so let's wrap it up. This is the book of Rihanna. Yep. And that, Gabe, is how we make a sequel to the Denzel Washington post-apocalyptic Hollywood movie, The Book of Eli. The Book of Rihanna Shoe Leather. I love it. All right, that brings us into the show. Now we have some exciting news. A new sound editor joins us today. It's Sam. Sam's a friend of the show uh, and us boys, and we're thrilled to have him on board to make us sound more articulate and funnier than we actually are. How good is that, Gabe? I mean, it's pretty awesome, and I'm pretty sure he in Pro Tools has a slider that says funniness, and he just has to dial that up and uh, it'll improve all of our jokes. Wouldn't he just, like, leave it? Like turned up the entire time? No, you have to modulate this. You don't want uh, people to think we're too good. True, yeah. I mean, that's a problem that we've always had in our lives anyway. You need to try and have the uh, – to appreciate the peaks. That's right. You need to actually have the troughs as well. Yes. All right, Gabe. Yes. Speaking of troughs and peaks, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Um, they can they can get right down to the bottom of that trough, right into the gutter there on Twitter. At Gabe Dowrick. Excellent. And I'm Ben Phelps, at Ben Phelps, on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can also find all of my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, which is now a new app on iPhones. Thanks for listening, folks, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Take care during these troubling times. Stay safe. Wash your hands. And stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Goodbye, Ben. <laughs>